You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priest and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greatest sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the stone pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, Here is your king. They shouted, Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself, He went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, 
Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Please be seated. I'll come just straight out of the gate and tell you the biggest problem we have this morning, the biggest problem we have every Good Friday, is our inability to see the cross for what it really is. It's our inability to feel the weight of Jesus' crucifixion. Crosses are everywhere. There's one right here. There's one in the corner, there's one out the front. People have crosses tattooed on their skin, they wear crosses on jewellery around their necks. Crosses are everywhere. We've domesticated the cross. We've domesticated the cross like we've domesticated dogs. Let me give you a picture of what we've done with dogs. Here's what's happened. Majestic, ferocious, beautiful animal. Turned it into a lap dog. That's what we've done with the cross. That rugged cross, that shameful cross. We've lacquered it and guilted it and we've lost its meaning. That's our biggest problem this morning. We fail to feel the weight of God on a cross. Right now, actually, if you walk around Caroline Springs, every, like every man you see between the age of 25 and 45 is wearing a T-shirt that has a cross on it. There's an example. Um, It's a Melbourne brand, Kiss Chasey, their, their, their logo, their emblem is the cross and it's just like everyone's got one, which is great. I love walking around the street and just every dude I see has got a cross on his shirt. I'm like, hey, it's my brother. Praise the Lord. I've got another image of their, their t-shirt, which is like just over the top ironic 
because it's a picture of a cross that says, never say die, which is, makes no sense. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like having a surfboard with, with, like, written on it, like, never get wet. Just, it's, the whole purpose of the cross is death. The whole purpose of the cross is execution. It's what the cross is for. If you end up on a cross, you can say, never say die all you like, but you're going to. It's inescapable. Victims of the cross are helpless. The cross was a symbol of death that people in the first century understood. The weight of it wasn't lost on them. The cross was the ultimate symbol of shame and pain and humiliation. I want to read to you the the least graphic description I could find of what people in the first century understood the cross to mean. And... uh, I'm not even going to put an apology or a disclaimer on this because this is just the way it is. This is what we need to come to terms with. Mike Bird, who's a, a biblical scholar and uh, works over at Ridley College, this is what he says. Crucifixion was the Roman way of saying, if you mess with us, there is no limit on the violence we will inflict upon you. If you had ever seen a crucifixion, he says... They were common in places like Judea. The experience would have been truly terrifying. It would leave you with the irrepressible memories of naked, half-dead men dying a protracted, that's a a drawn-out death for days on end, covered in blood and flies, their flesh gnawed at by rats, their members ripped at by wild dogs, their faces pecked at by crows, the victims continually mocked and jeered by the torturers who enjoyed their craft, perhaps even with relatives nearby, weeping uncontrollably, yet entirely helpless to do anything for them. This is the purpose of the cross. I recommend to you a podcast which I just love called The Rest is History. It's hosted by a couple of historians, one of which is Tom Holland, who wrote a brilliant tour de force uh, of Christian history, a book called Dominion. And um, just last night, as I was trying to get to sleep after our Maundy Thursday service about one in the morning, the new, a new episode dropped into my podcast feed, and it's on the crucifixion. So if you want to look it up, it's, the rest is history. These are not Christians, and so... They don't come at the scriptures necessarily believing them to be the word of God or certainly and perhaps not even historically accurate. But um, Tom Holland knows that the cross is the enduring event in human history. It is the event that divides human history. It is the event that echoes still in the midst of our secular society with such force. So in this program, he describes the fact that if you're a Roman governor in the first century, uh, if you came up across any sort of insurrection, any kind of rebellion, 
in any of the Roman provinces. Uh, you had three options in terms of punishing the rebels. You could burn them alive, you could feed them to wild beasts in the, in the theater, make, make it a, a party, make it, a, 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 um, make it an event, or you could crucify them, burning alive, eating by lions most of the time, or crucifixion. Now, out of those three options, the most horrific and the most sort of reserved for the worst offenders was crucifixion. People would prefer absolutely, without a question, burnt, being burnt alive or being eaten by wild beasts. They would prefer that to crucifixion, and here's why. Not only was it excruciatingly painful, in fact, the word excruciating just literally means out of the cross, excrucia, crucifixion. Not only was it that, but perhaps even more so, he explains, the reason they feared this death so much was because of the shame. If you hear this time last year, we talked about cultures that are honour-shame-based, and most cultures in the first century West were honour-shame cultures, and so to be hung up on a cross, forget the loincloth, that wasn't there completely naked, hung up on a cross, unable to even writhe or move because of being pinned to this wood so, so um, permanently. To, to endure that for days as people mock you was too much for the first century mind. It was too shameful. That's why it was not meted out to Romans but to their enemies. That's why it was known as the slave's death. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. The ultimate humiliation was death on the cross. And we have this in writing from first century sources. We have it from uh, Cicero, who's a, a famous Roman statesman, philosopher, historian, orator. Uh, here's what he says about the shame of the cross. He says, crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty. This is written in the first century. The worst of deaths. It is atrociously cruel. Not only in the physical pain it inflicts, but equally in the humiliation it brings to the man crucified. The very word cross, he says, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. The mere mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. Shameful, horrific, excruciating. One of the things that Tom Holland notes, which is striking to him knowing the history of crucifixion, is that he says the most striking thing about Jesus' crucifixion is that he goes voluntarily. He does not resist. He doesn't kick and scream. He goes to the cross purposefully. And so he does. 
We saw this last Sunday on Palm Sunday as Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem and starts that climb from low Jericho up to high Jerusalem. He knows with each step he is approaching crucifixion. He doesn't resist. He doesn't run. He, work, he walks with purpose to the cross. So he says to his disciples in Matthew 20, he describes exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to take place. He says, see We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, he says of himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked, flogged and crucified and on the third day he will be raised. He knows exactly what's going on. And he walks every step of that death march with Purpose, born to die, born to die, born to suffer and die. And when you consider, and hopefully we even just get like a 1% insight into what this actually meant for him, When you consider all of this, the pain, the shame, then naturally you've got to ask the question, and this is the question my boy asked me earlier this week, he's like, why is this good Friday? David just did a beautiful job of describing to the children why it is that we should call this Friday good. Let me have a go at it myself. And here's something that I'm confident the children will get. Here's, because it's very simple. This Friday is good because on that cross, Jesus deals with our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin. This is how the prophet Isaiah says it in uh, 600 years before Jesus is even born. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, God says to his people, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. He gives them this promise that he is going to deal with their biggest problem, which is sin. Sin is the reason there is that keep out sign on the Garden of Eden and a keep out sign on the Holy of Holies in the temple. A keep out sign wherever God is because he he cannot live among sinful men. So it gives them this this kind of very poetic promise. We're going to settle this. Yes, your sins are red, scarlet red like blood, but I'm going to make them white like wool. Sin is our biggest problem. If you even look at the word sin, and kids, this is something that you can just keep in your mind for the rest of your life. This will be helpful. If you look at the word sin, S-I-N, the middle letter is the, the most important one. It's I. That's what sin is all about. Sin is me. 
Sin is where I put me in the middle of everything. It's when I say, I will rule. I am king. No, I am God. It's what Adam and Eve were saying to God in that garden when sin first entered the world and then every single person but one has followed in their footsteps. Every single one of us sins. That makes us sinners. And the essence of sin is me saying, don't need you, God. I have myself. I am the captain of my soul. I am Invictus. I am God. The prophet Isaiah picks this up again in Isaiah 53, which is this beautiful, poetic picture of Jesus' death in our place. And in Isaiah 53, he kind of gives us the bad news and the good news together in verse 6. He says, we all, really, everyone? Yes, all, I said all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It's I. It's me. All of us have done this. So if you're here this morning and you're a human being, then congratulations, you're on the team. You qualify. It's not a great team to be on, but you're on it. You're on it with all of us here. All of us like stupid sheep. The moderately intelligent ones know where to stay close to the shepherd. The dumb ones go off on their own and are slaughtered by anything, like anything that comes across them. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Bad news. That's, that's the news that broke the world. That's the news that keeps us disconnected from God. And if you're disconnected from God, then you're disconnected from life. God is life. And so that's why the Bible says the wages for sin is death. The thing you get for choosing to be your own God is death. That's your salary. That's your reward. Eternal death. That's the bad news. But Isaiah, kind of looking forward 600 years to seeing the suffering servant, the, the, the dying Messiah, he says, he completes that verse by saying, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, that's the sin, the rebellion of us all. He's laid it on him. He's gathered up and taken up all of our rebellion, all of our me first, me God, thoughts, words, deeds. He's taken all of them and laid them 
on a lamb that would be slain for the sheep. That's why it's Good Friday. Jesus wasn't just a good man taken too soon. He was the perfect man who died in our place. That's why it's good. That first Good Friday, an exchange happened, which is the greatest deal that anyone has ever been offered. The perfect man, Jesus, took upon himself the iniquity of us all and in exchange gave us his perfection, his purity, his righteousness. His white wooliness was tainted with crimson sin and he exchanged for that white robes. Paul tells the Corinthians like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, it's like, who, who is this for? This pain, this shame, this humiliation, this excruciating death, who is it for? Paul says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, colored, completely colored him in with black, with crimson, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't know sin. He didn't do sin. He had committed no rebellion. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That is, his perfection. That's the exchange. And that's why we call it good. With all of the shame and all of the pain, the sheer humiliation of God naked, bleeding on a cross, all of that is good. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. I loved what David said earlier to the children. I hope you picked up on it. He said, the reason this is Good Friday is because it all happened according to God's plans and everything God does is good. By definition, it's good. So this Good Friday is the climax of a plan stretching back to eternity past. As far as you can look back into Eternity past, as far as you can go back, which is forever, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit scheming with joy, scheming for the redemption of their beloved creation, the redemption of people made in their image, and the redemption of creation itself. The renewal of all things is the thing that's on their mind. And it's the thing that drives Jesus to the cross of Golgotha. The end. 
this is God's plan of redemption. And this is why on the cross, as he breathes his last, Jesus says those three, the most powerful, profound words that have ever been said. He said, it is finished. It is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He wasn't talking about his own death the expiration of his own being. He was talking about the plan of redemption for the world. This eternal plan, stretched out from eternity past to eternity future, has its climax as Jesus breathes his last. He says, it is finished. And the cool thing is, because it's written in Greek, we have these extra kind of signs and symbols within the language that make it much more profound than what we say in English. So, in Greek... This is written in the perfect tense. It is finished. When, when something's written in the perfect tense, it means it happened here and it continues to happen forever. It happened in this time in history and it has ongoing effect. It is finished, Jesus says, and it always will be. There is no time in the future where this will need to happen again. It is done. Full. Final, complete, it is finished. That's why we call it Good Friday. Our invitation to you this morning is simply to step into what has already been completed. It's simply to receive by faith the work that has already been done. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus or perhaps you, haven't, you just haven't understood up until now why this is good in the first place, then by all means, today, right now, step into the completed work of Jesus. Speak to a Christian friend who can tell you more about the depth of the meaning of this day and then come back in a couple of days and celebrate The fact that death could not hold him down. He's risen. He's ruling and reigning over all things and has promised never to leave us or forsake us. That's all I've got to say. But I do want to finish by reading you a poem. It's written by a hip-hop artist stage name Propaganda, his uh, real name is Jason Emmanuel Petty. He wrote this poem kind of describing why it is that we call this Good Friday. And uh, I want to read it to you. I do have the words on the screen if you think that will help you sort of engage with the words, but otherwise it might be good just to close your eyes and listen to this beautiful poem. I'm not going to read it in full, but it will go for a couple of minutes. So just get comfy. It goes like this. 
It was a Friday. Early morning, while the sun was still sleeping, Jesus was cheated. Arrested for no reason but the treason in men's hearts. And just like that, it starts. It was an unjust Friday. Six trials, nothing sticking, priests punching, judges kicking, slinging lies at infinity, beating down on divinity, who by grace didn't speak. Obedient, meek. It was a painful Friday. As daylight tumbled in, whips ripped the skin of the one who healed a thousand wounds, the one whose soul was right and true, left in shreds for something he did not do. It was an ugly Friday. The clawing crowd, when given choice, let villain fly in single voice, but when Jesus' name was lifted high, could find no word but crucify, crucify. It was a bloody Friday, filled with nails and wood. And a man who did what only God could, arms open wide, good enough to die for the very people who hung him out and bled him dry. It was a dark Friday. A shout to the sky, a spear in the side, two Marys start to cry as angry earth trembles and black clouds swell quietly. Jesus goes through hell, dying in our place, dying well. On Friday, Good Friday. How is it a day of such evil and pain ever got the word good in its name? This day of infamy, human villainy, when the world showed off its most evil face. Because there in that blood-stained place, when they pulled the body down like seed to ground, the author of life sprouted roots of grace that would once for all save the human race. This victory death. A complete surprise as demons and devils with fear in their eyes realize that once a perfect man died, the law was finally satisfied. No more striving. No more trying. No more guilt. No more dying. The man who lived the way we should died the way only God could. And that's why we call this Friday good. The day Christ fell is the day mercy stood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a gruesome day, a grievous day, and a good day. And Lord Jesus, Those of us who know you are just full of gratitude, thanksgiving, 
humble worship for all that you've done for us. Your life demonstrated to us the depth of God's love for us, your compassion, your humility, your mercy. But even greater was your death for us, dealing with our biggest problem, satisfying the law of God, bringing us into fellowship with you. We praise you and thank you for your grace, unmerited favour, unlooked for love. You were forsaken so that we might be forgiven. Thank you. We worship you. You are our saviour and our Lord. Loving Father, please continue to call our minds throughout this day to the essence, to the meaning, to the purpose of Good Friday. And may that recognition give way to joy and thanksgiving, confession and repentance. Lord God, I pray that you would reassemble us here, gather us as your people to worship the risen Lord Jesus in a couple of days' time. In the meantime, bless us, challenge us, change us, Save us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue now.